Good morning, church. Good to see you. I'm Steve. Happy, happy to see you. If you would, go ahead and stand. We're going to sing to the guy that can transform us, okay? Raise your voice loud. Thank you. 
gotta hear you. Oh, hero of heaven, you conquered the grave. You free every captive and break every chain. Oh, God, you have done great things. We dance in your freedom, awaken the light. Oh, Jesus, our Savior, your name lifted high. Oh, God, you have done great things. Yeah. You have done great things. Yeah. Oh, God, you do great great things that he has done for you. He is the one that has broken the chains in our whole life and given us something brand new. He's made us different. The world needs to see us. You guys agree with that? He is the chain breaker. If you've been walking the same old road for miles and miles, you've been hearing the same old voice tell the same old lies. If you're trying to feel the same old holes inside, there's a better life. There's a better life. If you got pain, he's a pain taker.
something exciting over here to my right, your left. Let's go ahead and watch that. Hey guys, this is Autumn, and she's making the biggest decision that anybody can ever make at any time, right? She's making Jesus. She's making Jesus the Lord of her life. I'm going to ask you to repeat that confession of faith. I believe. I believe that Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Is the Son of God. And I'm accepting Him. And I'm accepting as him. my Lord and my Savior. And as my Lord and my Savior. Well done. On the basis of your profession of faith, I get the privilege of honoring, of, of baptizing you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of God's Holy Spirit. Are you ready? has transformed us, right? My name is Billy Janone, and I'm so excited that you have chosen to worship with us today. We have just a few announcements before we continue with our worship service. First off, if you are new here, we are so glad that you came. I'm going to ask that you grab a red Connect card out of the seat back in front of you. Fill that out for us. Turn it into the greeting team on your way out. This is just a way for us to say in person, thank you. We're glad you're here. Answer any questions you may have and get you any information you may be looking for about Cap City. Now, coming up in two weeks, we have our ladies' brunch. This is a great way for you to spend time with some of the amazing ladies here at Cap City. Maybe meet a few new ladies to add to your circle. And that is going to be taking place on Saturday, October 2nd at 11 a.m. down in our Family Life Center. We are going to ask you pre-register for this so that our kitchen crew has an idea of how much food to prepare. So we need you to register by next Sunday, October 2nd. Go ahead and get out your phone. Go to capcity.info. You should have the information there for you to register. Also coming up right around the corner is trunk or treat. This means that we are collecting candy and we need a lot of it, okay? If you are like me, you are so tired of seeing the Halloween candy that's been in the store since July. But the good news is, is that means that it's now all on sale. So go this week, get you some candy that's on sale, bring it back with you next week when you come to worship. We have a trunk out in the lobby where you can drop all the candy there. Or if um, you want, you can drop it off at the office anytime this week, and they'll accept it there as well. This also means that this is one of our big all-hands-on-deck events, right? We need a lot of hands in order to make this event happen for our community. So we need everything from people to decorate trunks and hand out candy, people to shuffle candy back and forth. We need face painters. We need people to monitor our inflatables. There is something for everyone to serve, and we need you. So I'm also going to ask you to go to capcity.info and register, or you can do it on our church center app, either one. If you have questions about ways you can be involved, feel free to reach out to Lisa Maddox or to Ben Jeffries, and they can answer your questions and get you registered that way as well. You may have noticed that a lot of us have name badges on, okay? We consider Cap City to be one big Cap City family, but it's kind of hard to feel like family if you don't know each other's names, right? So if you are not wearing a name badge, we're going to ask that on Sunday mornings when you come, you check in, you get your name badge printed, and you put it on. This helps others get to know your name. You get to know other people's names. If you're new here, you're not in our system, we don't have a name badge for you, that's okay. If you stop by our Welcome Center on the way out, I promise you our greeters will get you taken care of. We'll have a name badge for you next Sunday ready to print. We have been in the series called Being a Bad Guy for a few weeks now talking about being different than the rest of the world. 
and it's hard to be different, right? Some of us are embracing it. We're like, yeah, I'm a rebel, and, and you've got it 100%. You're all in. And others of us, we're kind of still on the fence a little bit, right? It's hard, hard to be different. But that's what God calls us to do. And we kind of have this backhanded way that we'll comment on things when they're different. So, for example, one a lot of us Christians, especially Southern ones, are known for, somebody may react to something different than we would or do something a different way that we would, and we would say, well, bless their little hearts. How many of y'all have used that one? I know I have, right? Or maybe your friend gets a new hairstyle. They try a new cut. Maybe they go with a different color, and they say, what do you think? And you look at it and you say, well, that's different, right? Because you really don't want to tell the truth. Or maybe you're at a friend's house and they fix something that's different than you would fix. And they set the plate in front of you and you say, hmm, well, that looks different, right? It's hard. We're not always comfortable with different in society, right? But God calls us to be different. Here in a few minutes, we're going to come to the communion tables around the room after this next song. And at this point, we're going to celebrate everything that God has done to make us different, the transformation that Jesus has made inside of us. We're going to do this together as a family, something we do every week. If you are part of Cap City, you consider it your family, then the black box is there, there for your offering. You give your first part back to God as a way of worship. Uh, maybe you've got a little something extra this week. End of the month, maybe you've got a little extra. You want that to go in those white generous buckets that goes 100% to help anyone in our community that may be struggling. But when we come to these tables, what I want you to think about is that we are here to serve a God who calls us to be set apart. We're here to worship a Savior who went about saving us from our sins in a way different than any of us could have ever imagined. And I want you to think during this next song, are you living a life that is built upon the things of this world? Or are you living a life that is built upon the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ? Because for me, the most backhanded comment that someone could make as a Christian is for them to say that my life looks just like theirs and no different than the world around me. Let's stand and sing.
keep walking around with that chain anymore. Let's go to the tables right now and remember what Jesus Christ has done for each. Matthew. Matthew, son of Alpheus. Yes. Follow me. Me? <laughs> yes, you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you doing? want me to join you? Keep moving, street preacher. Do you have any idea what this guy has done? Do you even know him? Yes. Listen, I said to... What are you doing? Where do you think you're going? Guys, let me go. you lost your mind? You have money. Quintus protects you. No Jew lives as good as you. You're gonna throw it all away. Yes. I don't get it. You didn't get it when I chose you either. But this is different. I'm not a tax collector. Get used to different. Get used to different. It's a powerful line, isn't it? I mean, have you ever been different? That's fun to watch on a, on a screen, but have you ever been the one who is different? That you've been the one who stood out or not fit in? Have you ever been the one that's felt like you were on an island 
It seemed like everybody else all agreed and got along and they were all the same, but then there was you and you were just different. Has that ever been you? It's a weird feeling, isn't it? It's isolated. You feel like you're on an island. I, uh, I received a gift when I was five years old that changed my life and not necessarily always for the better. All right, I received this gift from my mother. I think it's because she had a little bit of a crush on Joe Montana. And so she got this as a, as a gift for me, and it changed me. She didn't intend to. It, didn't, it wasn't on purpose, but I got this gift. And because of this, this little San Francisco 49ers action figure of Joe Montana, because of that, I became a 49ers fan. Now, that wasn't a big deal in the 80s. Everybody was 49ers fans because they were dominant. They won lots of championships. They were really, really good. All that was fine. But in the 90s, things changed, especially for me, because I lived in West Texas. There aren't a lot of 49ers fans in West Texas. Texas is Cowboys country. Everybody likes the Cowboys. Everybody. That's not an exaggeration. It's everybody. And in the early 90s, as they developed a dominant franchise themselves, the one team, the one organization that team to that seemed to challenge them the most was the 49ers, which meant that for a time, the 49ers were the greatest rival to the Cowboys, which meant that I was greatly outnumbered. It was rough for me. I was the only one that there was. I looked around. I was greatly outnumbered, but I went all in. I was all in on the 49ers. I had the jerseys. I had the hats. I had the gear. I wore it all the time. I was completely out, all in. Now, now, some of you think that this might be the same as like Kentucky and Louisville, and it's not, all right? Because most of you are Kentucky fans, but there's some of you that are Louisville fans. There's too many of you Louisville fans to claim that you're alone, all right? Like you're not alone. There's too many of you. There's comfort in small numbers, all right? And so there's enough of you that it doesn't really count. This will be like being a Duke fan in Frankfort, Kentucky, which there's like two or three of you and you're bold, right? You're different. They're, they're kind of like unicorns, aren't they? <laughs> right? And that may be a hard thing for you to hear. So it'd be like if you moved to Durham, North Carolina, and you were a Kentucky fan. How isolated and alone you would be, right? And for me, this built up uh, kind of into this crescendo moment of my life on January 23rd, 1993. <laughs> I can give you the date. The Cowboys and the 49ers played in the NFC Championship game. And I had talked trash all week long, knowing my team was going to show up and that they were going to dominate and win. I was outnumbered, but I had the better team, and I let everybody know it. And then the Cowboys absolutely whipped them in ugly fashion. Like, that was an understatement, okay? Just absolutely ugly game. I skipped school the next day. That is, that is a, my mom thought I was sick. I was not sick. I was terrified, all right? It was a rough time for me, okay? And here's the reality, okay? Like, I embraced it, and so I wore the jerseys. And I'm pointing at Joe Theismann's jersey there, but that was because we were at his restaurant. It was really about the 49ers. And, like, you know, the, the Football Hall of Fame, I was there. This was my, I think, my eighth grade class picture, like, like in school, okay? So, one, yes, I know you're all wondering, yes, I did have a bowl cut, and it looked great. Number two, number two, my mom did not know it was picture day. And when I brought home pictures of me wearing a jersey, she was angry, all right? But I was all in, okay? I embraced it. I was alone. I was on that island, but I loved it. I loved being different. I embraced the role that I had, and I was outnumbered. And here's the reality. 
In my school, there wasn't a table in the cafeteria reserved for 49ers fans. It didn't exist. I was a, I was a unicorn. I was one of one, all right? And in my community that I lived in, there wasn't a place where 49ers fans lived, all right? They, if, if there were any of them, they were just kind of scattered throughout. They didn't have a place. They didn't have a belonging. They were alone. They were different. There were, there were some Oilers fans. They were kind of weird, all right? And there were some people who hated the Cowboys, but it didn't necessarily mean they liked the 49ers. But by and large, again, I was completely enemy number one within the community that I lived in. Everybody hated the 49ers kid, I promise. It was ugly. I was different. But I learned to love it, and I learned to embrace it, and I kind of appreciated it, and I don't look back on it with any sort of bad feelings. I love this line from The Chosen that we started with, get used to different. It's challenging, and what's fun about this is that you won't find that in Scripture. That interaction isn't word for word out of some account that we have from the Gospels, but it is so prevalent, the idea of get used to different. When Jesus shows up, he doesn't meet anyone's expectations. He totally catches everyone off guard. They had no idea what to expect. Like They had in their idea that this mind of who the Messiah was going to be. And so they thought that he was going to come, and he'd be like a spiritual leader of, of some sort, some level. But really what he was going to do was he's going to lead this rebellion. He was going to be this conquering type of a, of a leader, of a king. He was going to lead the nation of Israel back to freedom and independence, and, and he was going to restore the nation the way it was supposed to be. So when Jesus showed up, he broke their expectations. He didn't at all do what they thought he was going to do. He, he, he taught differently and he lived differently. And one of the coolest things is that he lived among the people. Before Jesus, when, when messiahs would kind of raise up these little rebellions from time to time, these people would come along claiming to be the messiah. They would go and they would hide in the mountains. They'd kind of get this gathering and they'd work together and they'd kind of try to build enough momentum that when they left, they'd have a, a, enough of a movement to actually accomplish something. Not Jesus. Jesus lived among the people. You'd see him at the marketplace. You'd see him at the places of worship. You, you, you'd see him rubbing shoulders with the common people. He would preach to the people who were wealthy. He'd preach to the people who were poor. He did this all the time. He was anywhere and everywhere, rubbing shoulders with normal people. And when he did that stuff, it messed with people's minds because it's not what they expected. He was different. He was unique. One of the people who had the biggest issue with this was a guy named Peter. He was in the clip we saw there asking Jesus, like, like do you know who that guy is? Do like, you understand who it is that you're inviting to come and follow you? And Jesus says, yeah, of course I do. And Peter, Peter says, well, you shouldn't. <laughs> you shouldn't like this guy. And Jesus says, well, you didn't mind whenever I called you, which I think is great, right? And Peter says, no, but that was different. Peter had a real hard time with Jesus being different. In fact, there's a moment in their life together where Jesus calls him Satan because Peter wasn't getting on board with how Jesus was different. So later in life, Peter now is a leader in the church. It's well after the resurrection. He's become a great guy who understands the vision that this Messiah had cast, and now he's leading the churches to fulfill it. And then he writes these words in 1 Peter chapter 2. He gives this encouragement to Christians and he says this, Peter writes, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. Now, if you've been in church for a long time, if you've been at this church for a long time, there's a really decent chance you've heard this before. This isn't new language. This isn't a, like a breaking ground kind of a concept. But this is absolutely foundational to understanding what it is that you have done by accepting Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. 
It's absolutely foundational. That when you pledged allegiance to him, you removed your allegiance to anything of this world, which means that it's going to make you not comfortable in this world. It's going to make you an alien and a stranger. The church needs to understand this principle because sometimes we look out at the world around us and we can't figure out why they live the way they do or why they do what they do, why they think what they do. And the reality is that's their natural habitat. For those who are outside of Jesus, the world is their home. It's weird for us. We're the ones who are the outsiders. We're the aliens. We're the strangers. We're the ones who are different. When we proclaim our allegiance to Jesus, we make a declaration of different, that we are choosing. We're putting our foot in the ground. We will be different than what the rest of the world is around us. And so Peter starts with this encouragement to these young Christians to, to be aliens and strangers in this world. So then he goes on. He says, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. That's weird. It's real weird in our world, isn't it? That word abstain doesn't seem to come up very much in our culture, does it? We live in a culture that really likes indulgence, not abstaining. And beyond that, our, I think our culture would teach that in order to find the greatest fulfillment in life, it's the pursuit of your greatest desires, isn't it? The things that are deep within you that, you that you desire that nobody else knows, that if you would fulfill those things, that's where you'll find joy. That in fact, those things are warring against your soul. That's heresy in the world that we live in. And yet Peter looks to, to the church, he looks to Christians, and he says, look, look, you're aliens and you're strangers. You don't fit in in this place. And if you're going to be different, then it's going to require you to live different. And if you're going to live different, let's start by abstaining from a few things. The reality is, is that there's things in this world that our world will teach is good, but you'll find that it's contrary to what God has spoken. And yet at the same time, there's things that God has said is good that will be contrary to what our world is trying to communicate. They say those things are actually bad. There's conflict here. And Peter says that if we're going to live in this world as aliens and strangers, that the first step we take is we abstain. See, the Christian is the one who is countercultural, not because they're out of step with uh, trends and passions of culture. It's not just about that. Sometimes Christians have this reputation of just being weird and awkward. And it shouldn't be that way. I mean, we're not just being weird for the sake of being weird. We're not being awkward just because it's fun to make people feel awkward, right? But it's because of this. It's, we're odd because we're trying to be godly. We don't have the same target in life that the world has. Do you understand what I'm saying here? That we're aiming for something completely different. We're not trying to fit in with what the world says. We're not trying to fulfill our innermost self. We're trying to be godly, and it's going to make us odd. And the reality is, is that countercultural living is the result of following Jesus. When you make that declaration that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you're also making a declaration of different, that you're going to live differently than what the rest of the world is around you. But it's not just that. It's not just the things that we abstain from. And so Peter started with this. He said, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. And then he adds this. He says, live such good lives. It's not just about what we don't do. It's also about what we will do. 
that we live good lives. We abstain from the sinful desires, and then we live such good lives. And notice the location. The location is really, uh, really, really key here. It's not just that we live good lives and we go like do it in seclusion or that we do it as a group collectively and privately, but that we do it among the pagans, that we live among people who don't believe, who don't see what we see, who don't think the way that we think, and we're to live good lives among them. That's what Jesus did. That he lived among the people and he was different and he broke expectations, but he abstained from the sinful desires. He lived a good life. And then Peter finishes by saying that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. What does it look like to be different in our world? What would it look like to be different? Peter's quick, simple answer is simply this. Abstain from sinful desires. Live a good life. Do what is good. Not the good that our culture would say, not the good that maybe even you would come up with, but that the, it would be the good that God has laid out, that you abstain from evil and that you do what is good. And I think just on a simple level, if you would just pause and consider what it is to live in the world and the culture that we do right now, you could probably acknowledge that someone who just paid attention to those two simple things would probably stand out. They would probably look significantly different than the world around them. Here's what I think Peter understood. As he writes this to early Christians in the first century, he writes to a group of people who have enemies all around. Everybody hates Christians. Everybody hates this new movement. Everybody hates the, 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 the church and what's kind of starting up here. Everyone's against them, and everyone's looking for an opportunity to attack and an opportunity for it to fail. So the early church understood that they were isolated, that they were different, that they were on this island, and they also understood that the only way for them to survive was to develop an ethic of blamelessness. They had to live holy and righteous lives. They had to abstain from sinful desires because if they didn't, they just blended in with the rest of the world and then they had ammunition flying at them. You see how that works? They had to live different. And it wasn't just about not doing the bad. It was also about doing the good. It was also about finding ways to live good into this world, to bring good into this world. They developed an ethic of blamelessness and they developed an ethic of doing good. That is where the church is at right now in our culture. If we're going to sit here and we're going to do a series about being the bad guys, then we have to recognize that we have to live different. We have to adopt an ethic of blamelessness. It's time for the American church to begin getting serious again about like holiness and righteousness, that we care about how we live and that we live in a different way because we abstain from what our world says is good and instead we pursue what God has said is good and we live in such a way. And it's powerful. It changes the world around you when you get in lockstep with what Jesus is doing. I also think this is why moral failures in the church are so catastrophic. Because we preach the right things, we say the right things, and when we get it wrong, the damage is more than just to one person, isn't it? And look, I'm not trying to make any sort of statement about this. I know that we're all one bad decision away from being there. And I know that grace is sufficient and it overcomes and it's great, but this is what gives churches bad reputations because the world is watching and they hate us and they see us as their enemy. And when we fail, we give them ammunition. You see the weight of this. And so Peter writes to a church to encourage them, you're strange, abstain from evil, do good. It's absolutely necessary. In fact, this is so big to Peter. This concept is so big to Peter that he doesn't even just say it once. He repeats himself. 
The very next verse, in fact, Peter jumps in, he gives us an illustration, he gives us an example of something that we can practically do, but then he's going to repeat himself about what this is, okay? And so he says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king or to the supreme authority or to governors. Now, I'll tell you right now, that if you want to stand out in our culture, I don't know if there's much more that you could do than to actually be respectful to authorities. Am I wrong? I mean, can you imagine being at the water cooler tomorrow morning in the office? Do they still have water coolers? People say that. You're there and you're talking and you're, you're, you're interacting with your work associates, right? And they're having the same conversation. It turns political. And it doesn't matter which aisle of this, you know, which side of it that you're on, okay? It turns political and it turns into the same kind of bashing of whoever like it always does. And then typically you would step in. What would it look like if you said, you know what? I don't have anything nice to say, so I'm just going to be respectful to the position. Man, that'd get some attention, wouldn't it? That would catch people off guard. That would break expectations. I think Christians used to be fairly good at this. I don't know. I'm young, I guess. I don't know. But we're not now. Our culture has been so divided politically that even Christians are more than willing to step in and be critical of people in position of authority. And that's a shame. Peter says one of the things that you can do as Christians that will be countercultural is to be positive, even about those in authority, that you would be respectful of them, recognizing that God has put them in that position. Isn't that something? I'd get people's attention. That would be different. And it's not just politics. I mean, we've seen the deconstruction of the family for so long. Parents have lost their authority in the home. It's time for us to respect the role of parents again. But teachers have been torn apart in our culture. It's no wonder why we can't get enough people to be teachers. Because we have denigrated this idea of authority so much so, it would be different if Christians started speaking about those in authority with a, with a sense of respect, wouldn't it? It would challenge our culture so much. And, and it's, it's more than that. It's, it's, it's even like law enforcement. I mean, I know that there's guys who get it wrong, but man, we act like authority is, is just an awful evil thing. And how we speak about this stuff matters. As a Christian, one of the things that you can do is to be respectful of those in authority over you. And our culture is so backwards that if we would just get that right, we'd stand out. Isn't that amazing? And so Peter says, he gives us an example of what it would look like to abstain from evil, even abstaining from the evil desires of being disrespectful to authority, all right? That's a, that's a core issue there. And then he goes back into what it looks like to live good. He says, for it is God's will that by doing good, you would silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Peter tells us that it's our doing good that ultimately silences those who would oppose us. That the more that we act like Jesus, the more it puts pressure back on those who would be against us. And think about this. They may call us the bad guys. Our culture is doing everything they can to make Christians into the bad guys. But you know that in 2019, Cap City raised $100,000 for medical debt relief? I wasn't here. I've learned about it. I think it's really cool. That as a church, this church, 2019, raised $100,000 to pay medical bills of people in this county and the surrounding counties, so much so they had to like expand out through most of Kentucky. That that $100,000 was turned into nearly $10 million worth of medical debt. I don't know anyone else who's doing that. That's the church. And that's doing God's good, and that will cause us to look different. And you know what? 
even most pagans will see that and acknowledge that that's probably good. And we do this event every year called Jesus Prom. Do you know that there's some people in our culture who would suggest that people with disabilities don't have any value at all? That their life really isn't even worth living? That's not what we believe. And so we throw a party. And we make them the center of attention. We make them our welcome guests. And we celebrate their existence. We recognize that they have intrinsically the image of God imprinted on their souls. And we make a big deal about them. And we don't just do it once a year. We do it every single week. Right now, in a room right behind us, we have a service going on for people with disabilities and their families. Because sometimes it's hard for the family to be able to worship in an environment when that's what your family member is going through. And so we even created spaces to show them that they're important and that they're valued. And you know what? That's doing God's good. And it looks different. It's different than what the rest of the world may say. But you know what? Even most pagans would look at that and agree, yeah, that, that's probably good. There's more. They might say that we're the bad guys. Some people claim that Christians don't like women. And yet if you look closely, you'll see that we are doing everything we can to support and encourage women. We do classes for moms, that's simple, but we're also creating ministries designed for women who are struggling with a pregnancy, trying to figure out what to do with it. Because we don't want to just preach things, we want to do things. We want to step into their lives and come alongside and empower them to make good decisions for their lives and set a new path forward for them and their families that could last generations. We want to come alongside women and give them resources and education in ways in which we can help them better their lives and be able to lead their families well. And we come alongside other ministries that do that work because it's worth doing, because women are worth caring for, because they're made in the image of God. And we value them, and we want what's best for them. And they can say that we're the bad guys, and, and you know what they do? They try to push us out of schools. They don't want Christians in schools because we might preach what it is that we believe. You know what we do? We show up on their door with gifts. We do. We just... We keep doing stuff. We keep gathering supplies because some kids can't afford supplies. So we gather supplies and take it to the school so kids can have everything that they need. And we help out teachers who have to use uh, their own money to pay for things within their classrooms. We come alongside of them and help them have what they want. And when churches, or I'm sorry, when, when schools are in a bind, you know they call us for help even though they don't want us there because they know that we'll show up. That's doing God's good. And that's different. And even most pagans would agree that that's good. I mean, they say that we're the bad guys, but we're the ones who are looking into foster agencies here in the area trying to figure out how we can care for children who are in bad spots. And we have an event, we have a group that meets every Tuesday night called Celebrate Recovery that is geared towards people who have addictions and hang-ups and hurts because we want to see lives improve. We want to help people. We want to do good, not just preach good. We care a lot about the relationships in your home, but sometimes we'll just care actually about your home. And so Cap City steps in and we help repair houses and we help build houses. We pack food and we send supplies to third world countries trying to help them out. We feed the hungry. We pay the bills of those in our community who are struggling. We run towards disasters seeking to help instead of running away. And that's doing God's good. That's different than this world. It's going to make us stand out. And even most pagans would agree that's good. But what about you? What do you do? I mean, it's cool that you're sitting in the room right now. Today you get to be a part of Cap City. And since we're all doing those things, and it means we're all doing those things, that's really cool. You're part of the team. What are you contributing? What role have you played? 
It doesn't have to be done in the context of ministries within this church and within this building. It can be played out in so many other ways. It can look like hospitality. There's some people in our church who actually believe that their home exists for the kingdom of God, not for their own personal comfort. That's a wild thought. It's kind of controversial. It's kind of countercultural, but it's real. There's people who believe that an empty bedroom in their home is room for a child to be adopted. That's cool. There's people who believe that an empty bedroom in their home is a place for someone to get back on their feet. That's cool. There's people who believe that ministry takes place better in a living room than it does in a worship center. And that's cool. And they're seeing their own calling to step into those spaces and to do good work. Maybe, maybe hospitality isn't your thing. I know that for some of you, your skin's crawling thinking about having to open up your home and have people in it. I get it. That's fine. You've got your thing, right? Maybe it's helping those who are less fortunate. There's a group in our church, a, a life group that exists that was all talking about what they could do to make an impact, and they decided to work together, and they go hold a bingo event every month in an area of kind of a poor area, lower-income families. They bring prizes in. They do everything they can just to build relationships and love on people and care for them. That's cool. That's doing God's good. I mean, are you seeing it? The possibilities here are endless. The soup kitchen here in Frankfurt was started by people in this church, not by this church, by people in this church. They didn't wait for the church to come up with the ministry or come up with the idea. They just did it themselves. And that's beautiful, and that's good. That's doing God's good, and it's different. It makes you stand out. It makes you look way strange, like aliens in this world. Now, this is so important to Peter. This whole concept is so important to Peter that he says it a third time. He says it twice, but now a third time. He's going to reiterate it as simply as he can. It's like, it's like when you repeat to your kids and you're tired of repeating it, and so you just make it as simple as you possibly can. Peter, now, very next verse, verse 16, as simple as he can. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. That is, abstain from sinful desires, all right? And then he says, live as servants of God, show proper respect to everyone, love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honor the king, simply put, do good, live such good lives that they would see you and that they would know and that they would understand. You know that if you live like this, it's going to make you stand out. It's going to make you be different. It's going to be like salt on something bland. It's going to be like light on the top of the hill in the middle of the night. It's going to make you as different as a 49ers fan in West Texas. It's going to make you as different as a Kentucky fan in Durham, North Carolina. But it's good. If we can embrace this, man, what an adventure you get to be on. It's so good. There's a section that we just flew past really quick because it's better to finish there than to do it early. Back in verse 12, we focus on a different part of the verse, but I want to change your focus just for a moment. We focused in on this idea of live such good lives among the pagans, okay? And we talked a little bit about even location, that when we live good lives, that, that we do it in a way that it gets seen, that we do it in community, that we don't do it hidden, that we don't do it like only in the building, but that we live our normal lives among real people, that we live such good lives. But I want you to focus in on the second part of this verse. Peter says that they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Do you know that Jesus is coming back? Like, it could be like now. I mean, it could be before we're, we're done with this service. And some of you would be grateful, and that'd be great. Right? He's coming back. 
And how cool would it be if when he gets back, he catches us doing good? What if when he arrives, we're right in the middle of serving someone or helping someone or blessing someone, praying over someone? How cool would it be when Jesus shows up and you're like, hang on, Jesus, I was in the middle of something. Like, how cool would that be? To be caught doing good. And I love this, that not only is he coming back, but when he does, everyone's going to glorify him. There's, that's a great picture. That's something I long for. I cannot wait for the day when Jesus returns and we're told every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Man, I can't wait. It's going to be good. But can I tell you, can I tell you, for some people, that will be their first time. It'll be their first time proclaiming the goodness of God. But Peter tells us not everyone. Peter says that there will be some who see you as the bad guy. They will see you as the enemy. They hate what you stand for, and yet they will see your good deeds and glorify God. There will be some who don't wait until the day Jesus returns. They will begin glorifying now because they see your good work. They will see the work of Jesus in your life and how it changes the world. Isn't that a beautiful picture? that those who would be against us would actually worship our God because of our faithfulness. This whole be different thing, this isn't passive. This is real. If we're going to be a church that's seriously following Jesus, it's going to cause us to be different. It's going to require us to get used to different. We have to embrace it. We have to appreciate it. We have to be excited about being the outsider and looking unique. It's powerful when we do. Cultures change, communities change, churches get on the move when we catch a glimpse of this. Here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to step into a time of invitation in just a moment, but first what we want you to do is we want you to just listen to a song. It's something that Steve and his band have prepared that is really powerful, incredible lyrics. What I want to do is, and, and, and what I'll be doing up here is I'm going to be praying these words over you right now. Because it's not just enough to say that we, that we need to be different. There needs to be something changed within us that we want to be different. That we actually have a desire within us to be different and to stand out. And so I encourage you to listen to these lyrics. I want you to spend some time just praying over this. Meditate on these words. See if they don't resonate with your soul. And join us in being different.
was Friday afternoon, and Jesus is dead. His brutalized body hanging without life on a cross dropped into a hole in the dirt. His executioners had dug the holes, prepared the place, and done their job with ruthless efficiency. This wasn't how it was supposed to be. The hope of mankind overcome by powers of hell, by the shadow of a grave. We once knew what it was like to rule and reign on the earth. We were made to live in the light, in a relationship, in purpose. We were made for more than what we've come to accept as normal. Ever since the garden, Satan and his kingdom have been tightening their grip. Darkness has ruled evil, chaos, suffering, hopelessness. We've been enslaved and crippled by the holes the enemy has been digging for us too. But instead of killing the Messiah, the cross became a catalyst for salvation. The hole that was dug to hold an instrument of shame and death was instead filled with an instrument to bring healing and new life. That's the way God is. Nothing is impossible with him. He's always restoring, always renewing, always able to take what was meant for evil and turn it for good, to take our graves and turn them into gardens. Why? Because he never gave up on his plan. He has never given up on us. He knows what we don't, that you can't have resurrection life without death, Jesus. He died so we can have lives of purpose and power over the grave. He is not dead. He is alive. And because he lives, we can live again. different
Father, thank you for changing us, turning our bones into an army, turning our graves into gardens. And we know where we were and now where are we going to be because we give ourselves to you. We want to be a light in this world. We want to be a salt to this world. Thank you so much for loving us, for using us, for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're so glad you changed to be here today. We hope to see you again next week. All right.